The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. The scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 20. We'll begin in uh, verse 29. If you're using one of the Bibles in the back of the pew, that's on page 775. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one as a gift from Park Church. Matthew 20, verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is Luke. I'm the student minister here. And because I'm the student minister here, we're going to play a little game to start off our message today. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a couple pictures on the screen, and I need you guys to tell me what do you see? What do you see on the screen? So let's go ahead and put up the first image. All right. What do you see on the screen? An old, a woman, okay, an old woman or a young woman? Young woman, okay, who sees a young woman? All right, who sees an old woman? All right, so it's maybe two-thirds, one-third. It's actually both, right? So I don't know if you can see, like, there's, for the young woman, she's looking backwards, but for the old woman, she's kind of looking, like, just straight that way type of deal. I don't know if you can see it, but that's okay if you can't see it. Let me, let's do another picture. Okay, go ahead and hit the next one. All right, what do you see there? A horse. Does anyone see something different? A frog. Who sees a frog? Raise your hand if you see a frog. Ah, a couple of you guys see the frog. Who can see a frog? All right, all right, go ahead and hit the next slide so you can see. Oh, it's a frog when it turns sideways. Ah, okay, crazy. Crazy, right? Crazy. All right, last one, and here's the magic one. I don't know, only one person at the 9 a.m. service saw it. But when you look at this mess, does anyone see something in that picture? Does anybody see anything? Has anyone done magic eye pictures before? Yes? Who can see something? Does anyone see something? You do? Oh. Is that Howie? Does Howie see something? No, Harvey sees something? Does anybody else? Anybody. Can anyone see a sailboat in that image? Can anyone see it? No? No one can see it? You can see it? Okay. What's your name? Jack. Jack. All right. Jack, uh, how good is your eyesight? You're wearing glasses. So, like, not super good, not super awesome. Not great. Not great. Okay. So, but can you see the sailboat? Yeah, it's like from the bottom, like, kind of two thirds up a little bit. It's a line of, like, three little sailboats. 
Ah, yeah, there we go. Okay, so believe it or not, there's a sailboat in that mumbo-jumbo up there. Here's the deal. I stared at this picture for like 20 minutes, and I could not see anything. I still, to this, so I have 20-20 vision. I've got perfect vision. I cannot see the sailboat, and I guess most of us can't either. Um, but the thing is that it is there. There is a sailboat in that image, and if you like look at it in a certain way with these like magic eye pictures, there, it's there, but like I can't see it. I can't see it. Today, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And the biggest theme, in the, well, one of the biggest themes in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is bringing in what is called the upside-down kingdom. He's ushering in the upside-down kingdom. And the idea is that the kingdom of God is utterly, utterly, totally different than the kingdom of man, than the kingdom of humanity. Its values, the, the values of the kingdom of God are totally reversed in comparison to the kingdom of man. In the kingdom of God, the poor are rich, but the rich are poor. In the kingdom of God, the weak are powerful, but the powerful are weak. In the kingdom of God, the king becomes a slave, but the slave become kings. And in the kingdom of God, we see that the blind are unable, or the blind are able to see, but those that can see are blind. And in this passage, Matthew issues us a challenge. He issues us a challenge. He's asking us, how good is your eyesight? How good is your eyesight? And not just like, oh, 20-20 vision or whatever. He's asking us, how good is our spiritual eyesight? Can we see? Can we understand? Can we internalize this, this kingdom of God? And can we understand and figure out who this king is and what he's about? Or are we actually blind? Are we blind to it? Matthew challenges our perceptions of the kingdom by asking us three questions. Go ahead and put the, yep, there it is. Three questions. Three questions. Number one, in the kingdom of God, who is blind? And number two, in the kingdom of God, who has sight? And number three, in the kingdom of God, who is the son of David? So question number one, who is blind in the kingdom? Number two, who has sight? Who can see and number three, who is this son of David? But the main point that I hope that we see this morning is that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom, and its king is Jesus Christ. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we just pray that this morning... You would open up our hearts, open up our eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. For whatever it is that you have to say to us through your word, through your scriptures, Lord, may we revere it, may we understand it, may we, may we dive into it. Lord, we want to see your face. God, uh, there's so many things in our lives, so many things in this world that kind of block or, or obscure our vision of you and who you are in your kingdom. But God, we pray that just over the next, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes, 
that you would just, I don't know, take the, take the scales off of our eyes, that we would just be able to, to see you and know you and get a glimpse of your face because we believe that if we can just get a tiny, tiny little glimpse of your face, we know we'll forever, forever be changed. And so, Lord, we pray for that this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be in our midst, that you would show us your face and we'd walk out those doors as different people because we got to see you, Jesus. So we pray for that this morning. May the words that come out of my mouth not be mine, but rather yours instead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next slide. First question. The first question that Matthew asks us is, who is actually blind? Who is actually blind? Let's read verse 29 again. Verse 29. And they went out of Jericho, and at, sorry, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. They followed Jesus. Okay, so check this out. This passage starts with a big crowd following Jesus again, again. And it's probably thousands and thousands of people. And this was nothing new to Jesus. This was nothing new to him because he's had huge crowds follow him in the past. This was nothing new. So if you'll recall from the Sermon on the Mount, he had like huge crowds that listened to him. If you'll recall the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000, where, you know, just huge, huge crowds were there following Jesus, listening to him. This is nothing new to Jesus. But throughout the scriptures, we notice that Jesus always had a really interesting relationship with the crowd, with the people that followed him. Super interesting relationship. Because Jesus loved the crowd. He loved them. He had compassion on them. He taught them. He healed them. He fed them. He, did, he, he loved them so much. But throughout the Gospels, we always observe that the crowd, the followers of Jesus, mind you, never got it. They never got it. They never understood. They never figured out who Jesus really was. They never understood. They never saw him for who he really is. They saw his miracles. Sure, they saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. They heard it. They, they, they remember it in their brains. But they had no idea. They had no idea who Jesus actually was or what he was really about. And we can totally see this was true in this case right here in the crowd's interaction with the blind men. Let's read the second half of verse 30 and the first half of verse 31. So verse 30. And they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. So if you can just imagine the scene, there are these, these two guys, these two blind men, they're sitting by the road, that, and they want to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus. They want to get, interact with him. They, they want to talk to him. They want to get close to him. They're crying out in desperation, begging, begging for help. They're begging for help. And so, how do Jesus' fo Jesus's followers respond to this? How do they respond to these people who are in obvious need? Do they help them? Do they encourage them? Do they usher them into Jesus' presence? Nope. No, they do not. In fact, they do the exact opposite. They do the exact opposite. They rebuke them and tell them to shut up. That is exactly what the crowd, the followers of Jesus, do to these two men by the road. 
They did a similar thing with a guy named Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, we read about a guy named Zacchaeus who also lived in Jericho. And, but this guy, Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector, so everybody hated him. He was lonely. He was lost. He was desperate. And he wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus because he heard good things about this guy, that this guy changed lives, that he brought healing and hope and joy everywhere that he went. He heard this, and so he's like, I, want, I just want to get a glimpse of Jesus. But because he was a wee little man, the crowd was unable to, or sorry, the crowd kind of, they, were, they became an obstacle for him. They prevented him from being able to see Jesus. But then Jesus, who's an awesome dude, by the way, Jesus seeks out Zacchaeus. He seeks him out. And he, like, you know, ministers to him. He goes to his house. They hang out together. There's a renovation in Zacchaeus' heart. He turns to the Lord. He repents of his sin. But what happens is the crowd, they grumble at it. They grumble over the fact that Jesus hangs out with Zacchaeus. The crowd is kind of like, this guy's a turd. Why are you, Jesus, hanging out with him? You should be hanging out with us good people with the good people like us. Why are you hanging out with this guy? We are the ones that deserve your attention, not this poop over here. You don't, he doesn't deserve it. We do. In both situations, the crowd, the followers of Jesus, were blind. They were blind to Jesus' heart. They were blind to his heart. They had no idea that Jesus cared for these people. They had no idea that, they had no idea what Jesus' priorities were. They had no idea who he really cared about, and they had no idea what he was going to do for them and for the world. And so, because of their blindness to who Jesus was, the crowd prevented people. The followers of Jesus prevented people from getting close with Jesus. We do the same because we tend to create Jesus in our own image. And what happens is we blind ourselves to who Jesus really is. We say things like, my Jesus doesn't hang out with sinners or tax collectors or gross people. My Jesus doesn't do that. Or we say, my Jesus is going to conquer the Roman Empire, and then he's going to give me wealth and power and prosperity, and, and it's going to be great. That's what my Jesus is going to do. Or maybe we say, my Jesus supports my political party. Or maybe we say something like, my Jesus is going to give me a really lucrative job and a big house and a great car and a you know, great body and a you know, hot girlfriend or hot boyfriend or something like that. All of us have the tendency to reduce Jesus, to put him in a box and make him into our own image. But the problem is when we misrepresent Jesus, when we misrepresent Jesus, we turn into obstacles that prevent others from coming to know him. And so the question is, is this us? Is this us? How similar are we to this crowd that prevented people from drawing close to Jesus? Matthew, in this passage, is warning us of how easy it is, how easy it is for us to become stumbling blocks for those who are seeking Jesus. And he's reminding us that our job is to usher people into the presence of Jesus, not keep them out. 
And so that's the first question Matthew asks us. Who actually are the blind people? Next slide, second question that Matthew asks us, which is, who in this passage actually has sight? Who are the ones that have sight? Let's read verses 29 in the first half of 30 again. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Okay, so check this out. In the beginning of this passage, we're introduced to two blind men, to two people who are blind. And so they're sitting by the road near the city gate, uh, and they did that because the city gate was a major thoroughfare, right? So a lot of foot traffic there. And so they were presumably begging for money. And you got to understand that back in the first century, being blind, unfortunately, was possibly the worst fate anyone could have. If you were poor, if you were a refugee, if you were deaf, if you were mute, if you were lame, if you were leprous, or even if you were maimed, sure, it was bad. That was a bad way to be. But at least you had some recourse. You had some recourse. Because you could still work a little to some extent. And you could glean for food. You could glean for food. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the law commanded landowners who like grew, you know, just grew crops and that sort of thing. God commanded the landowners to provide for the poor. Landowners were not allowed to maximize their profits, and they weren't allowed to harvest to the edges of their fields. So let's say, pretend that you were a landowner in the Old Testament, and your name was Boaz, okay? So your name is Boaz, and you own a bunch of land, and you are like harvesting your food, but you tell your servants, uh, you are not allowed to go all the way out to the edges to grab all the little bit and maximize profits. You're not allowed to do that. And on top of that, anytime, if you're like gathering food, if you're harvesting and you drop some food accidentally, you drop some of the grain or whatever it is that you're harvesting, you drop some grapes, you're not allowed to pick that grain up. You're not allowed to pick that stuff up because all of that was for the poor and the marginalized. This was God's Old Testament economic system that provided for the marginalized and the poor. And so it was a brilliant system. It was a really, really good system Except if you were blind. Except if you were blind. Because if you were blind, so because think about it this way. The poor, the refugee, the deaf, the mute, even the maimed to some extent could still glean. You could still pick up food. You could still harvest. Um, you could still glean if you had those things, right? If you had those disabilities. But if you were blind, you were kind of out of luck. You were out of luck. How could you get stuff when you can't see, when you don't know where you're going? You can't find food, and therefore, you can't glean. If you were blind in the first century, you were completely dependent on others for providing for you. So, if you didn't have friends, and if you didn't have a family, and you were blind, very often, blindness was a death sentence. Blindness was a death sentence. You had no hope, and you had no future if you were blind in the first century. So, by human standards, these two blind men that are sitting by the road, these two blind men are in really bad shape. They are in super bad shape, right? Except that they saw something that no one else, that the crowd could not see. Let's read the second half of verse 30 again and verse 31. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. What's going on here? Son of David. This, I, this, thing, this title, son of David, is a messianic title. It is a messianic title. These blind men knew somehow that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Messiah. And even though the crowd told them to shut up, they kept calling out to him. They kept crying out because they knew that Jesus was the only one. He was the only one that could save them. Let me tell you a quick story. Uh, This is a true story. In the 1800s, there was a man named Charles Blondin. Charles Blondin. And what this guy did was, uh, the way that he made a living was he would do like a daredevil act. That's kind of what he did. And so what he did was he would, he strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Okay, Niagara Falls, anyone bid there? It's pretty high up, right? It's pretty big, right? Big waterfall. But he strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls, and the tightrope was like a quarter mile long, 160 feet above the waterfall. And what he did was he would walk across the tightrope. He would invite lots of people, you know, have them pay for tickets and that sort of thing. And he would, you know, walk across the, the, the waterfall forward and then backward. And then he would do it like blindfolded. And then he would like ride a bike across sometimes. And he would like get on stilts and he would walk across on stilts. Like this was his show. One false move and he's dead. One false move and he would be dead. And so, because of, like, you know, the fear of death, or because, like, it's like, ooh, death is cool and it's exciting, so we want to watch it. So it would draw, like, big crowds. Big crowds would come to watch him do this daredevil act. And so everyone would, like, ooh and ah, and they would, you know, like, gasp and hold their breath, and they would cheer when he'd make it across or go all the way across, and it was, like, this really big show that he would regularly do. On July 15th, 1859... Um, long before suing became a cool thing to do. Charles walked across the tightrope backwards to the Canadian side of Niagara Falls. But then he came back to the American side pushing a wheelbarrow. And so when he went across, when he got across, everyone cheered for him. Yay, you made it with a wheelbarrow. That's awesome. Cool. And then what he did was he asked the crowd, hey, crowd, do you believe, do you believe that I can carry a person across this tightrope on this wheelbarrow? And of course, everyone cheered and they were like, yeah, of course we do. We believe you can do it. We totally believe it. Yeah. And then Charles replies, great. Do I have any volunteers? Silence. Silence. The crowd saw that Charles could do it. They saw it, him walk across over and over. They saw him ride a bike across. They saw him walk on stilts across. They saw him do all these, like, they believed he went back and forth across Niagara Falls on the tightrope many times for, like, a long time. And they're just like, we believe. They saw him do it. They intellectually believed that he could carry them across in a wheelbarrow. But no one would bet their lives on it. No one was willing to bet their lives on him and get in the wheelbarrow. The crowd that was following Jesus around, same type of crowd, the crowd that was following Jesus around, they believed in Jesus. Sure, they believed in him. He was a cool dude. He was pretty nice. He was like healing everybody. He's like a good teacher as well. Pretty entertaining, pretty cool to hang out with. 
They believed in Jesus, but since all Jesus was to them was a cool teacher and a, did that did, a guy that did like magic tricks, but since, since that's all Jesus was to them, they were all spiritually blind to who Jesus really was. However, the blind men, they didn't just intellectually believe in Jesus. With their whole hearts, these blind men, they believed in Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed and bet their lives. They bet everything that they had, which wasn't much, but the only thing they had was their reputation, and they put that on the line for him because they believed this is the one man, this is the one person that can save us because he is the Messiah. They bet everything on him. And ultimately, they didn't let anything keep them from Jesus. They didn't let the crowd or the obstacles get in their way. They just cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And so the question is, who is Jesus then to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a nice guy, good moral teacher that you can kind of like keep at arm's length a little bit? Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I like Jesus, but I'm just going to kind of like keep him as an accessory to my life. He's like my side hustle. Christianity is my side hustle. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's my side hustle. It's like I'm, I'm mainly a, a father. I'm mainly an employee at this company. I'm mainly the, you know, the spouse or the boyfriend or girlfriend to this person. That is who I mainly am. But Christianity, yeah, that's on the side. That's my side hustle. Is that who Jesus is to you? Someone that you keep at arm's length? Or is Jesus your savior and your only hope of rescue? Matthew shows us through the blind men that true followers of Jesus don't treat Christianity as an accessory or a side hustle. They go all in, hop in the wheelbarrow, and trust that Jesus will carry them through. And so that's the second question that Matthew asks us, who actually has sight? Next slide, last question that Matthew asks us, which is, who is the son of David? Who is the son of David? Okay, so we know that Jesus is the son of David, right? We know that Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah. But what does that mean? What does that mean? We get a hint of it in the very beginning in verse 29, where it says that Jesus had finished his, so that Jesus was headed to Jericho, or he was heading out of Jericho. That's our first hint. Jesus had just finished his ministry up in Galilee. Go ahead and hit the next slide. So Jesus had just finished his ministry in Galilee, and he was heading down to Jerusalem. Okay. And so, or sorry, he wasn't heading down to Jerusalem because if you'll recall from our series over the summer, as we studied the Psalms of Ascent, you never go down to Jerusalem, even though it's to the south, you always go up to Jerusalem. So chances are the disciples and Jesus, they were all singing Psalms 120 to 134 as they were making this uh, this trek up to Jerusalem. And you'll notice that the most direct route, route from Galilee to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, is due south through Samaria. But Jesus and his disciples do not go this way. Go and hit the next slide. Instead, what they do is they go southeast to Perea, and then they head west, cross the Jordan River, and then get into Jerusalem. And you're kind of like, what? Jesus, why this long detour? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? 
It doesn't make sense because, and so granted, a lot of Jews would take this route normally because they're like, ooh, Samaritans, we're racist. We don't like the Samaritans. But Jesus, he was cool with the Samaritans. You guys remember the story? You know, the woman at the well, all that stuff. He loved the Samaritans. He got along with them great. He had buddies there. He had buddies in town. He, should have, he could have gone through Samaria, and he had in the past. Why is he going southeast and then to the west, taking this long route to get to Jerusalem? What's going on here? Jesus, by traveling, by taking the long route, was making a statement. He was making a statement. Because to get from Perea to Jerusalem, Jesus had to cross the Jordan River, and he had to pass through a city called Jericho. Jericho. And does the name Jericho ring a bell to anybody? It should if you've read the book of Joshua. Because about 1,200 years earlier, a guy who had the same Hebrew name as Jesus, Yeshua, they were both named Yeshua, also known as Joshua in English, Joshua, 1,200 years ago, with the same name as Jesus, crossed the Jordan River as well. And he also passed through the city of Jericho and began the conquest of the kingdom of Israel. By taking this long route, Jesus was doing the same thing. Jesus was beginning his conquest, but to a far greater degree. Jesus wasn't just ushering in some dinky political kingdom. He was ushering in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And what did that kingdom look like? What kind of kingdom is it? What does it look like? Let's read verses 32 to 34. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus conquered Jericho, not through war, not through violence, not through death, not, through the, not, not the way that the kingdoms of humanity do it. He did the opposite. He healed people. That's how he conquered Jericho. By healing the blind men, he was symbolically saying that his kingdom would be a kingdom where all wrongs are made right. All sickness, all sadness, all pain, all suffering, all brokenness, all sin, all death are going to be undone in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom that he was ushering in. And that's exactly what Jesus accomplished five days from now, five days from this moment. And he did it not through violence, not through force, but by giving his life for us on a cross. Jesus Christ, while on the cross, he offered us a cosmic exchange. And the Bible says that if anyone ABCs, if anyone A admits their sin and their brokenness and their need for a Savior, if anyone B believes that Jesus is that one and C chooses to follow after him, if anyone A, B, Cs admits, believes, or chooses Jesus, he will take their sin and shame and brokenness and death upon himself. He'll take the death that we deserve on himself and give us the life and the joy and the healing and the glory that he deserves. And so let me conclude um, by just kind of 
one last, just kind of sharing one last observation I have of this passage. At the very end of the story, Jesus asks the blind men a very simple question, a very simple question, which is, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? I believe that Jesus is asking all of us the exact same question. He's asking us the same thing. What do you want me to do for you? What do we want from Jesus? He's asking us the exact same thing. Imagine this. As you're, you know, so service is over, benediction, yay, time for lunch, time for brunch, whatever, let's hang out, that sort of thing. As you're walking out of the doors this afternoon, this afternoon, as soon as church is over, right? Let's say you're walking towards your car, and standing at your car is Jesus himself. And you're like, whoa, it's Jesus. Hey, Jesus. And he's like, hey, how are you doing? How's it going? A little small talk here and there. But then you're kind of like, Jesus, what are you doing here by my sweet car? What are you doing here? And Jesus replies, hey, I'm here to give you the offer of a lifetime. The offer of a lifetime. I'm going to make an offer to you. For this coming year, you get to choose the life that you want. You get to choose the life that you want. Option number one, I'll make everything go your way. Everything's going to go your way. You're going to, you know, you're going to have success at work. You know, you're going to have some, your friends are going to be awesome to you. They're going to be really nice. They're not going to stab you in the back like normal. And, you know, you're going to just make some new friends as well. And then, you know, your spouse is going to be, you know, really hot. And then your kids are going to be really good for the first time ever, like, because your kids are never good. And so you're going to have, like, the best life you could have ever dreamed of. That's option number one. Or option number two, I'm going to make your life difficult. Your life is going to be hard. You're going to lose things. You might lose your job. You're going to lose your belongings. Your car is going to break down. You might lose people that you hold dear as well. There's going to be pain in your life. But through that pain, you're going to be forced to depend on me. And as a result, we're going to get closer, you and I. We're going to become closer together. You will draw closer to me. If Jesus presented you with those two options, which one would you choose? Which would you choose? Or, or more accurately, which kingdom would you choose? Your kingdom or the kingdom of God? I want to encourage you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Hop in the wheelbarrow and get ready for an amazing ride. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess that very often I'm just like the crowd. I'm just like the crowd. You're my side hustle. I like you. I like the things that you do and the things that you give me and offer me. But very often... I keep you at arm's length, just like the crowd. I don't know you or see you and want you for who you are or understand who you really are sometimes. God, I'm, I get so distracted by the things of this world, the things that just try and pull me from you but, but, but obscure my vision of who you are. And so, God, we just cry out right now, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would 
I don't know, unstop our eyes, unstop our ears. May the scales fall off of our eyes that we might see you for your glory. Lord, we've heard, you know, perhaps many of us have been going to church for a long time, and we've heard plenty of messages about you. We've seen the amazing things that you do. But, but for some reason sometimes, or, or maybe just in this season right now, maybe, maybe we're keeping you at arm's length for whatever reason because we, we think we're living the good life here in Denver. God, we pray that you would forgive us if that's the case, if that's, my, if that's our story, that you would forgive us and that we would be a people that earnestly desire to know you and draw close to you, understanding that you are the Messiah, the King, the only one, the only one who could truly rescue us and save us. And even though we're thinking that we live the good life, God, uh, Lord, please reveal to us the reality of how your kingdom is so much better than anything uh, this world has to offer. So God, please open up our eyes and our hearts right now as we prepare for communion, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, for your supper, God, that you would work on our hearts and just reveal to us, open up our eyes to see the things in our hearts that might be preventing us from drawing close to you, but also unstop our eyes that we might see your glory in your face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.